thank you for doing this interview with me. And how was it down there with you and your family working with this, going through this whole COVID pandemic? Uh, as it affects everybody worldwide, the COVID pandemic, especially when you have a family, um, it's a whole brand new way of life to getting used to. I have young kids who, one still in prep school, in, well, I guess for America, that's what, grade six. Mm -hmm. And, you know what I mean? And I have another one who's in grade eight, let's call it that. So, mm -hmm. um, and for them, it's also, you know, it, it's ex it's exasperating for them and it's very scary. So we're dealing with it as adults. And for those of us who have young children, we're kind of seeing it from their perspective too, as well. So the, the psychological impact is, is quite heavy. Fortunately, Jamaica, compared to other places in the world, I mean, I think up to date, we have like 4,000 and something cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like a drop in the bucket compared to most places. So, um, but however, it's still a concern because it's a smaller, more tight-knit community. So the chances are around here, when somebody actually tests positive, more than likely we know the person. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, that, and that's what's kind of been happening. And we've had a lot of notable, even in the music space, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like Toots Hibbert, for example, you know what I'm saying? And like, a lot of other guys, you know, Toots was COVID positive, and so and one or two other people too, which have which who have tested, and so it's a very it's a hiring time for everyone. Mm -hmm. I understand, you know, people feel like their freedoms are being taken away from them because they have to socially distance and wear masks. And for Jamaica, where we've been on curfews as well from day one, our curfew I think is currently ten. No, 9, 9 p.m. I think our curfew is right. No, 9 p.m. <clears throat> so, but that's not bad. It used to be 6. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? And 7. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, 9 p.m. ain't that bad. I think at one point, they got up to about 11 p.m. So, what that really means is that it functions normally. You know, we have regular hours, you know, of supermarkets and, you know, banks and regular businesses. But it means the nightlife, as opposed to for the entertainment sector now, like that has all but disappeared because... Clearly, you can't have parties, you can't open clubs, you know, bars, things like that. So, you know, so it's a, it's, it's a restriction that has impacted a lot of people um, financially, obviously. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's all fine and good to say, well, you know, just open up the place and who gets sick, gets sick. And, you know, the strong, you know, strong survive type of mentality. It's, it's all fine and well to say that until it's your family member who gets sick, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, or your yeah. family member who dies. So, mm -hmm. so you know, listen, unprecedented times, bro. We're just praying. We're in the worldwide struggles like everybody else down here. And, you know, we're just praying that we can, we, we can, you know, get a handle on this thing. And, um, yeah, and let's, let's hope for, you know, a quick resolution or a, a quick way to, to sort of learn to, to, to live with the dynamics of what it means to be in a pandemic and, you know, we all need to start pivoting pretty much to other things. You know what I'm saying? Because just after 9-11, mm -hmm. you know, the world the world wasn't the same. Of course. And after this, even even when it's quote-unquote, you know, like over, it ain't over. <laughs> you know what I mean? So everybody is going to have to try and think and pivot as to how they're living their lives and, you know, how they travel, how they move around, how they, you know, make an income. You know what I'm saying? They're given professions. I think everybody has to pivot and try and, and figure something out moving forward. Yeah, definitely. I agree with you on that. A lot of things you just said is the same thing that hits up uh, hits us up here in, in the States. And of course, if you follow some of the things on the news that's happening in the States, every state has their own governing body. Some people believe in wearing a mask. Some governors feel they shouldn't wear the mask. Some places mandate it. Some places don't. So even when I'm doing a gig, even though it's slowed down quite a bit, because here... 
we don't have a particular curfew right right now. We just have more limits on how much people you could invite into a venue. And right. um, it depends on if you want to, in, you know, enforce wearing a mask in that establishment or not. So some places say you have to it before you walk into their building and some places say you don't. And you just got to do the best you can protect yourself because just like you, I do have kids. I have one infant who's only eight months old. So, right. and it does take a psychological effect because since June, I do at least two parties per week since they open up a little bit to let us do certain and certain things or whatnot. But when I come home, right. I have to physically quarantine for almost 10 days and I can't really play with her the way I want to. Oh, wow. You see what I'm saying? That's crazy. So she doesn't, yeah. as she's getting older now, she doesn't recognize me as much as she recognized mom. You know what I mean? Oh, man. That's terrible. Yeah. So yeah. It, it does touch. And then the same thing, people will have their own opinions if, if, it, if it's a real disease or not until it happens to their family. So the reason why I kind of smirked when you said that was because we have the same debates here and that my wife, she already lost two people in her family to COVID-19. So right. when we explain that to, to some of our neighbors and friends, that's when they kind of, oh, snap, we didn't know it was really that serious because it hasn't touched nobody on their side. So, yes, yeah, so right, it's, right, right. it's a big, big adjustment. And sometimes when you walk out, you talk to some of your friends, and your neighbors, or your family, you tell them how it affected you. It's kind of like you laugh a little bit in your mind because you're like, they didn't really think this was real. You see what I'm saying? And then you just yeah. got to work with them on it and let them know. And then they kind of, okay, if DJ Blacks and his family saying this is real to them, we got to respect the fact that we can't go by their house and we got to keep a distance because they're going to enforce it because they they going through it now. You know what I mean? So definitely understand that. Um, so I mean, dude, when we were young, we were taught that if we sneeze, we must cover our mouth, right? Correct, correct. We, you don't just go at you in a big space. Everybody will say like, "Oh my God, you're spreading germs." Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I don't know why this is that difficult to really get. That you know what I'm saying? If if that was your protocol when you when you had to sneeze, I mean, people just need to understand like you know this is this is where it is. There's no you know other way to kind of go about it. In Jamaica, we have mandatory masks and temperature checks at all business places. So you can't go inside no store, no restaurant, no gas station or nothing ever at the door they have sanitizing station or a guard to spray your hands and they have the temperature check everywhere mandatory all over the place so is that so, go ahead so you, you know so you could decide that you don't want to wear it on the street but anywhere you walk into you have to have your mask and i've seen them turn back people all the time i'm like where are you going right no right. no ma go back and people go back to their car and get them you know what i mean it's like Come on, so we, we have a greater handle on it here, like that per se, in, in those sort of, you know, really urban type areas. So, listen, man, the whole world is going through this together. Nobody needs to feel victimized that they have been asked to do something that everybody else isn't being asked to do. You get what I'm saying? So, you know, it could be worse. People grew up in the in the times of world wars, had to sit down for years and live in world wars. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And have their cities being bombed. And <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. and things like that. So we, we're not we're not that bad as you know as those kind of people. We should be able to collectively just buckle down. You know what I'm saying, and just and just try and take the take the curve with this thing and, and turn it around. Okay, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. Um, I definitely agree with you on that because again, in New York, where I was born in Brooklyn, and my uncles still live up there, and they say that's the whole city got to wear masks. But here in Atlanta, right, it just depends right. on where you go and who you're dealing with. Um, right. But yeah, with that being said, we're going to talk about the Dancehall Anthems project album that came out, say, October 16th by VP Records. When I was listening to it, I was very, very fascinated. And I was wondering, 
who created these rhythms. And when I look, we had to do research because, of course, when the record labels send you these promos, they don't send you jackets like back in the day and feedback forms and stuff. Like, you don't get too much of those anymore. Right. So when I did my right. research. That's when I found that you created the rhythms. And I was like, okay, I've been work. I've been known who you are since, what, 94, 95? I think around 95, 96 time when I first heard the Fearless Rhythm. And that's why I sent you that picture of right. the cassette because that's my first time hearing the rhythm and I was like who bro that's crazy <laughs> yeah you need to put that you need to make that cassette mp3 bro and, and send it to me and my brother would freak out we'd all freak out everybody renaissance everybody oh yeah definitely I'll do that because okay. the la uh, when Jazzy T was here last year I sent him an old cassette when we first met because me and Jazzy T go back to like 97 90, 96 97 when I first met Jazzy T and renaissance and we've been friends ever since right then. right and the same thing I get him an mp3 copy so I would definitely do the same thing for you with it on there and send it to you or whatnot, so we could definitely. Yeah, do but that. awesome, bro. That's that's the archives right there, bro. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's incredible. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just doing some research on you. I know you're an equipment geek like myself, so I was fascinated. Like, okay, he's into equipment, into stuff, you know, into some of the archives and how you do things and et cetera, et cetera. With COVID going on down in Jamaica and you're producing and you got to work with artists, how did working with artists during COVID epidemic? How did that go together? How did that work? To be honest, though, Blacks, this project was started from 2018. Mm. So, so I wasn't doing any work on this during the COVID period. This started from 2018, and it started from the idea of doing a Yellow Man flip with Sean Paul. And so they, they approached me and said, like, hey, do you think Sean used to, you know, would do something like this for your listeners might, that might not know, I used to manage Sean mm -hmm. from 95 about till 2012. So I'm still on pretty good relations with him. So they asked me, like, listen, could you get Sean Paul to do this yellow man flip on, you know, the Zungo Zeng thing? So I reached out and Sean said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And then when we actually, you know, got the track together, it wasn't the same track. It was a sort of a hybrid remixes sounding kind of track with yellow man samples in there. And Sean kind of was like, oh, I don't know, man. I thought it was a good idea at first. The more I think about it, I'm not really too excited. And, you know, he he, he said, you know, if it's in the lines of doing a classic song. I'd love to do a Tiger record. Mm -hmm. So he kind of did his Tiger thing, you know, Marijuana Me Love, which is a take on Puppy Love. And, you know, Sean is a herbalist, as everybody knows, and he wanted to release his song on 420 Day, you know, for his community that, you know, always supports, you know, herb and marijuana. So... At that point, we're like, all right, Sean, no problem. You can do that and just run with it for that. And we sort of were a bit stimid as to how to proceed. It was going to be VP's 40th anniversary in 2019. So then the concept came about, well, maybe we should try and do a project to celebrate the 40 years of VP Records. Let's comb through the catalog, VP catalog and the, and the publishing catalog side from Greensleeves and see which one of these, you know, these, these records we could try and do new renditions of. So that's really how it was born. And then starting to look through that catalog and starting to realize, like, man, we're not going to be able to find the master tapes for this stuff. You know, this lot of stuff was from the late 80s. Right. You know what I mean? So for, forget Pro Tools and all of that. You know what I mean? That wouldn't exist. Forget hard disk recorders. That would never have existed. You're going to talk in all two-inch tape is what you're going to talk about trying to find this stuff. So you're going to try and find stuff on two-inch tape from the original master owners and the, the headache just seemed like in some unsurmountable. So I said, you know what? Let me see if I could build back the tracks. So I can't remember which is the first one I did. It might have been that same Yellow Man thing, actually, the Zungo Zeng. I said, let me see if I can recreate it faithfully as much as possible 
without having to think about the samples. So, um, so that's what I set out to do. And I'm a musician too as well. I played guitar, you know, when I was in high school, and 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 um, I can play a little bass as well. And you know, I've, I've you know five years of music theory, you know what I'm saying, as well. So in addition to being a producer and a manager, I'm a musician. I'm not the greatest musician, which is why I ended up being a producer <laughs> and a manager as opposed to being like a musician on the road playing for, for acts and stuff. You know what I mean? Right, right. But 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 I'm definitely a good enough musician in the studio, in my opinion anyway, you understand, to lay down tracks. So mm-hmm. when you started looking at those records, I was like, all right, cool, guitar parts, bass parts. Um, we can program the drums because, you know, we have everything. We have Ableton and we have freaking, you know, elastic audio and Pro Tools and we, every striking thing possible we can do. So, so yeah, man. So, start, set out, so, let me recreate one of these rhythm tracks as faithfully as I could. So, after I did that and I listened to it and I was like, okay, it doesn't sound exactly like it, but it kind of sounds like the modern version of it as if we're to do it today you know what i mean it's bigger drums it's a wider soundscape you know the bass is heavier mm-hmm. that's what i'm saying but but it still has the same you know memory attached to it when you listen to it which is something which i like to call the emotional memory of the record and what that really means is that if you put it side by side to the original today just like you know go on youtube or whatever listen to the original zungo zeng and listen to the the, the, the the version which became the Beaniman version on the project, you'll notice that obviously it's not the same rhythm track, like the same source track, but it sounds like just a souped up, updated version of it then. You know what I'm saying? Correct. And and what, what it has to do is that your emotional memory as a producer says, this is how it sounded to me. This is how I feel it sounded to me back in the day. So let me clarify. When you're young and you're on a big sound system at a party, listening to you know Stone Love, Metro Media, whoever it was at the time, and they would play Nice Up The Dance by Michigan and Smiley. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you know, it would still be an old school record, even for me. You know what I mean? Because I was really going to dances. I, I left high school in 88. So even when I started really going out, it would still have been a little bit of an old school record. But you remember the impact of it on the big sound system and how it sounded and felt to you. Right. Like how you were just like, yo, welcome for Nice Up The Area. Do, 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 do. And you like this memory of it of being this monster record. So in recreating it as a producer, I'm recreating it like it's a monster record. You know what I'm saying? So I got like, the drums are big and thick. <laughs> you know what I mean? Correct. And it correct. sounds like beefy. Right. So you, you make it off of your emotional memory. If you go back and again, compare it to the original, you're like, oh, it's the same rhythm which he has recreated, but it ain't nothing. This new version is just big and bad and, you know what I'm saying? Loud and, you know, cranking. So that's the emotional memory which kicks in. And I think I think that's what happens to a lot of people. This track is like yourself and a lot of feedback is that people remember it from back in the day and they have that same emotional memory attached to it, like, yo, this was a big tune. So when they hear the modern version now sounding big and souped up, it triggers that, yeah, man, I remember this. This thing was massive. It's the sound behind it. You know what I'm saying? Emotionally triggers you to be like, Wow, this is amazing. There's no drum roll in the beginning of Nice Up Dance by Michigan and Smiley, for example. I put one in, in the Kabaka version. Right. Boom. And it just feels like it should have always been there. You know what I'm saying? Correct, correct. So, yeah, so so I tried to kind of really draw on that for, 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 for putting together all the tracks for the project. But 
that's how it came about. And once I figured out I could kind of, you know, have a go at recreating the tracks, um, then, yeah, then it sort of expanded the palette because then I no longer had to think about who we had access to get master tapes from. And then so the process kind of evolved. And we had a big wish list of artists, actually, that we invited um, to be on the project at first. And it ended up whittling down to these guys. So a lot of names which you might not see, we actually did reach out to them. And they just, you know, for whatever reason at the time, they had scheduling problems, they weren't that interested. You know what I'm saying? They just never really got back to me. I mean, we reached out to all of these other, a lot of other artists, and it couldn't really happen. So that, that's how it kind of came together. And then we sat down and, you know, had the whole project. And then we kind of realized, like, well, I don't know if this is really VP40 anymore, because a lot of this stuff now, we've kind of gone outside of the straight VP catalog. You know what I mean? I've gone to Green Sleeves. I've gone to just like some classic tunes, bro, that were released so many times by different labels. So I think the, the marketing side was said, let's hold off on this. They ran out the VP 40 year of 2019. And then towards the end of the year now, they're like, you know what? We'll have the perfect way to package this thing. Let's call it dancehall anthems. It doesn't have to have anything to do with the 40th anniversary per se. And I think by that time, you know, record labels work, bro. Like you do a project, so I hear the project, and then one NR guy hears the project, mm -hmm. and then that NR guy has his, you know, ideas, and then it kind of goes up to, you know, one of the label heads, and you know, one of the heads says, "All right, Jeremy, you run with it," and then I end up kind of NRing it, and then, but it doesn't filter its way down to the marketing guys and the sales guys and the promo guy, so nobody else really hears it for like a long period of time, and then I think the more they started circulating it through the company. Then people got excited and be like, wow, hold on a second. You know, we can do this with this. We can do that with it. So then I think it gathered momentum internally. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? At the record label to be like, yo, this is how we need to brand this thing. We can definitely, you know, you know, get with certain disc jockeys. We can get certain press, certain media who would love this. And the ideas start to spark and they start to pull it together. And I think that's how it reached to where it is now. So the, the project that we're hearing now, you know, it's a long time coming just because of, trying to position it so the only thing that has impacted it from covid to be honest with you is that i know the artists would have loved to have been able to get on a road you know what i'm saying and, and push it and promote their songs you know within their sets and you know do appearances and stuff like that you know what i mean you know we could have we could have had a dancehall anthems event you know what i'm saying a launch party or something you know what i mean we could right. have been doing things like that um and put people in the same space and and, and film it and you know, what I mean, even it would still have, it still would have gone out online regardless. But it would have been easier to get the artists together in one place. Is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? We could have done one from Jamaica and had a big event and and stuff like that. So I think that's where we've suffered um, on it because of COVID. To be honest with you. But then again, at the same time, I'm here sitting doing an interview with you in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So we, we'll make it happen regardless. You know what I'm saying? We, 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 we try and do as much as we can to make it happen. Yeah, because to touch back on what you were saying about recreating those emotional memories, on my show last week, because I got the full album uh, the 16th and my show was on Tuesdays, I did the song you created, then I played the original one that came out back in the past. So say, for example, right. when you redid the Greetings uh, rhythm, uh, listen, I was like, this man even got it down to some of the pannings of the drum roll when it passed from one ear to the next. The original right. record had the same thing. So I'm listening. To, uh, like, right. So that's what I want to ask you. When I'm listening to the album, I see this. I see Jeremy trying to recreate those emotions of not just cranking out samples here and there. 
did you recreate just about every sound or do you have to get samples and then try to use plugins and different types of software to kind of enhance it and make it more punchy? Um, what, yeah, of course you have to use plugins and stuff like that too, but, but really more, it's more of a source sound to me. That's kind of how I work. If I want that snare, I was going to get that snare. You know what I mean? You don't just get that snare that sounds close and then try and fiddle with it for too long. It, I, I don't tend to work that way. So lot of it, lot of it, if you understand the original equipment, your, your life is easier. But if you understand that they use like a lot of Oberheim DMX drums. Right for example, or a lot of Lindrum samples, for example, then you can go, if you know the equipment that they used back in the day, then you can say, oh, you can go online and look for Lindrum sample packs. Right. And all of a sudden you hear the, you know, like the, um, you know, crack, crack, like those sounds. You Like you hear the, you hear the sounds, you're like, you know, toof, and you're like, oh, that's the actual kick drum because they just use a kick drum from a Lindrum machine. Right. Maybe, or, or, or a rim shot. So when you do that, that's half the battle, understanding where the sounds came from. And then if you think about like the kind of keyboards they used to use, obviously they never had massive and silent and omnisphere and nah, stuff like that. Nah. So you got to really think like, oh, they probably had a Yamaha DX7 maybe. So then you might go look in your native instruments. Um, what's their, their DX emulation call again? Their thing. You go look for that keyboard. Um, or, or, or you might go look at the, you know, the Arturia software. This is the geek section now. Right, 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 right. <laughs> you go look in the Arturia software package and go look for like Juno 106 or things of that nature. Um, um, another one of the drum, um, keyboards that they use heavily was the Yamaha DX100. It's a little baby keyboard um, with small keys, um, but it has that bass sound like the that 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 cockatee. Um, tune in, 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 in the loving of the lawn. Right, you know what I mean? Like that stuff is come from those little Yamaha DX100 bass tones. Uh -huh. So again, going online, looking for Yamaha DX100 samples, you know, trying to find, you know, somebody who sampled it. I think I found somebody on YouTube who was actually demonstrating it and played the bass note. And I just took it from YouTube. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. I just kind of... You know, put in Ableton in the simpler and just sort of made the whole bass patch from it and, 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 you know, make sure it was in tune. But if you know the gear and the idea of the gear, then it would help a lot. Same thing with the bass and the guitar, like to kind of figure out like, okay, well, they're, you know, they were using, you know, Yamaha um, Fender Twin Reverb amps at the time. So I use a Fender Twin Reverb out a guitar rig or whatever to, 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 you know, run my guitar through and then. I'm fortunate enough that I have a nice collection of guitars here. So I have like a couple of Les Pauls, a couple of Strats, I have a Tele, I have, you know what I mean? Right, right. I have some kind of vintage emulation model. So you can really kind of dial in the sound if you do it that way. And it, it, it it's very geeky, but it's a big difference. Like from if a dude just showed up with like a, you know, a $500 Ibanez guitar, not to knock Ibanez, I love them, but if you showed up with some Ibanez guitar and just kind of plugged it directly into the board, you not get the same sound Correct. as if you're like, nah, let's let's go for the Stratocaster or or, or the, the Les Paul sound, you know what I mean, through the through the Fender amp. So it took a little bit of research. I mean, I'm a geek for that stuff anyway, as anybody who's listening can probably attest to at yeah. this time. Mm -hmm. But 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 yeah, that's how you kinda have to go about doing it, dude. Like rhythm by rhythm to sort of pick it apart, put yourself back in a time frame and be like, nah, this must have been what they're using. And if you're putting a reverb, they're using, you know, like plate reverbs a lot of the time because that was what was popular back in the day. Right. 
So you got to go for that when you're mixing and not go for like, you know, whatever, you know, fancy new reverb that just, you know, that you got the other day or, you know, you, so, so you have to kind of think of it more in that way. And each little piece adds up. That's how I wanted to do it because I wanted to be very faithful to the original sound. You know, somebody else's opinion might have been like, nah, it's okay, just recreate it in a modern way and, you know, approximate the sounds, update them. You know what I'm saying? You could have, so it could have been done that way as well, but I, I, I don't think that, that that to me, that to me wasn't the move. The move was to try and just pay homage and be like, listen, these things are classics for a reason. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, and I just try and do it, do it, do it as much as I, I could to get it sounding like really in the pocket. Yeah, and again, I really appreciate that because, like I said, when I got the there's 13 tracks on the album, and I listen to all 13 of them, then I play back all 13 of either the original records or the remake that came out back in the day. So, say for example, like three songs got me that emotional feeling you was talking about. Greetings for one, because when I heard the stereo panning, I went back to the original Greetings by Half Pine. I say, okay, the heavenless the heavenless rhythm is playing. I'm playing both of them side by side, even though the old one kind of goes off on uh, speed and tempo because it's, I think they would use right, right. drums or whatnot. But the idea was, I said, this man even got the stereo panning down, you know, when I'm listening to it in my headphones or in the studio, I'm always listening. I like how to pan and go from left to right. The splash and dashing one, same thing. The one that Naomi redid, then I'm listening back to right. Garnet Silk. And how you just had the bass lines right. riding all the way through the beginning, just like Garnet Silk yeah. did when he recorded it. So again, that emotional tie. Because when I when you hear them songs back in '95 when it came out, and they just playing in the dance on that bass line just hitting, you just vibe to that bass line until the drums come in all the way. So you redid that one, and then without love, just the I was like, man, this man really hit those those notes to make it sound like it's a modern take. But let me go back into the originals and listen to the same thing again and again. And said, man, it really brings you back to listening to the old school dance always, plus putting the modern spins on it. Now, still talk about the project. Now, the artists that you got involved on there, how do they feel about redoing some of these classics? Did they know the song? Did some of them, hey, man, I never heard this record before. They had to learn from scratch. How did they feel about it? What was their take on it? Well, as I said, there was a, a roster of artists that we went through to arrive at what you guys finally heard. So many of those at the approach, um, they were like, ah, not interested in doing a cover of anybody's thing. Some of them just weren't really aware of the songs which I wanted to use. Um, they just didn't really know them, you know what I'm saying? Um, some people were like, yeah, and kind of uh, ghosted and kind of played around. Some people wanted to do their original song on Rudim, like totally original. And I was like, no, 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 we're doing covers, essentially. And they weren't really too happy with that. You know what I mean? And, um, and some people, them, they just didn't have the same emotional connection to the records as I do. Right. Because they're just younger than, than me. And so, you know what I mean? Like, they don't really know. I can have the memory of going to the dance when I was in high school and hearing the record. They don't have any such memory. They were born 10 years later. Right, 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 right. So... So to them, it was just like, eh, what's the big deal? We're going to sing about some old song. They didn't really see the point. You know what I mean? So we kind of had to kind of talk to people and go through one by one until they found the people that really kind of had the interest and were super excited about it, that had that same sort of love for, like, the old school stuff. And, um, yeah, and kind of and kind of get them to where they are. Some people chose their own songs. I planted the seed in their head and gave them the concept and made a give them a couple of examples and then they came back and said, "Yo, I want to do this." Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And some people, I just said, "I think this person would sound good." 
and pitched them on it, basically. You know what I mean? I said, hey, I think you would sound good doing this. You know what I'm saying? So so it's kind of like a mix of like trying to decide like, you know, which artist ended up doing which songs. So, you know, to kind of re- to reach that point. And okay, awesome. I'm glad you explained that because again, that's also more on the geek side. Because when you when you talk to producers and you're trying to do interviews, they'll usually just kind of stick to yeah, we made the beat, we resampled it, and then we just call the artist. But I like the fact you just throwing in the extras of how people really felt about it, so people will understand in the world like making music is not just because you hear the end product, people just think it just happens just like that. There's a lot of battles behind the scenes where you're trying to figure out who's gonna make it sound right, who really wants to do it who's really interested in it and then you get their feedback and then you're trying to okay we really want to use this guy or this girl but how can we really get them to buy in on this project i know just being in the studio sometimes sometimes people will hear a couple of songs and then they want to jump on it but at the beginning they were kind of eh. but when they start hearing the vibe and the vibe starts going right now they get more um motivation now they want to be a part of it or sometimes the opposite they hear the, the extra stuff going on. They're like, I still can't see myself in this project. And they kind of walk out the door. So I do appreciate you telling us how the inside mechanisms work. Now, before I move on, well, go ahead. No, I was going to say, we have to remember, artists have their own egos. And their egos exist for a reason. So that they can be artists. And they can you know, create and stand behind the work that they do. But with the ego also comes... Well, why am I singing somebody else's song? Because I should be singing my song. Correct. So that, that kicks in for them too. So it's a very careful place to find a person that's going to be like, you know what? I've always loved this record and I'd love to do it as a homage you know, to somebody versus somebody who's just going to be like, why am I singing over so-and-so's song though? Like, who cares, man? I just want to sing my own material. So you'll be surprised like, Naomi, for example, you mentioned the Garnet Silk. She chose Garnet Silk. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think to ask a female to sing a Garnet Silk record, right? And she was like, I was thinking she was gonna pick from, you know, J.C. Lodge or Marcia Griffiths or, you know, what I mean, like something like, you know, Don Penn, something that would make more sense for a female. She said, No, Garnet Silk. I was like, Are you sure? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and she, she, and she ran a little demo on her phone. I think she sang three different ones. Just sent me some voice notes. I was like, wow, actually, okay, I think you could probably pull this off. And so we worked on that. And, you know, she put a lot of effort into it in the studio to get it. And, and people have responded and be like, oh, really like the track. So that's an idea of, you know, she kind of came out of the, the, the blocks with that on her own. I mean, Wayne Marshall was just like, yo, Tenor again, sang like three, three different versions, um, three different songs were picked. And we ended up on this one. Um, and and you know and he was very invested into it and if you see interviews with Wayne I mean man did his research bro he like went back and checked the catalog he read up on Tenasa's life mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying and his beginnings and all of his recordings and his untimely passing and so he's a scholar of Tenasa at this point like if you get him he didn't just sing the song man he he dug it down fully and and learned as much as he could about Tenasa and got into character basically you know what I mean wow to try and pull up, pull off the record um, Bugle, um, who did Louis Culture, Gangali. Uh, Bugle personally knows Louis Culture. And Bugle said he went and, and checked Louis Culture and said, Louis, there's this project and, you know, I want to cover your song. And Louis gave him his blessing. And, you know, he came back to me, Bugle, and he's like, yo, I spoke to Louis. And Louis says, this cool, man. Like, I could definitely do this record. And the, the artist got paid small advances for the record. And Bugle said, like, yo, I'm taking half of my advance. I'm going to go check Louis and put this in his hand. Wow. You know what I'm saying? So, wow. So that's the kind of 
Love. You know what I mean? When a man does that from the heart and the love to show the respect to be like, bro, if it's even, you know, if I'm getting 10 bucks for this, I'm giving you five. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, he, he broke him off. So when you see things like that, you know that the artists them personally got very invested in it and they really believe in the project. You know what I'm saying? A, a lot of them really believe. And I think the greatest thing for me is that fact, you know, to say thank you to those artists for like, really believing in their individual songs in a project. Because I think even without me telling the stories, bro, it resonates. I think it uh, the energy is there in the records. And when you hear it, it makes you be like, no, nah, man, this is not a normal project, bro. There's I'm feeling a lot of, you know what I'm saying? There's a lot of energy behind it from everybody involved. Right, right, I mean, right. I, and it, sh it shines through. I think it comes through definitely because the response has been so tremendous. I firmly believe that people have listened to this project and said, no nah, man, these guys really—they're feeling this. Everybody on the project <laughs> is feeling what they did. You know what I mean? Yep. They're really feeling it. You know what I mean? And that—that's that, a—that's a major, major, major thing to to try and accomplish when you do a project with with multiple artists. Oh yeah, definitely. Like I said, man, that's why I said I want to talk to you about it and get some insight what went on behind the scenes because I feel the same energy when I heard the songs, the rhythms, and how they sang over it. It didn't sound corny. It didn't sound like they was just trying to do something. It sounded like you could tell, like I said, Splash and Dash, you could tell she was trying to get it right. Um, yeah. The rest of the records, the Bugles, like you said, you could tell that these guys, the Tennessee, um, the Way Marshall remake of the Tennessee, when I'm listening to it, I'm like, okay, these guys sound like they were doing something in the background, but that's just me imagining it in my mind. So now you're telling me what really happened. It makes me it makes me confirm that's my excitement over the record and how you try to create that right. emotional ties to the rhythm and then the artists try to create the same emotional ties to the vocals of it. Even though some of right. them, say for example, in the Dust of Sound Boy, Agent Sasko Assassin, he did some a verse on his own with his own lyrics, but again, it didn't sound like he was straying too far. It sounded like he was still right there on Dust of Sound Boy, but as a DJ artist, he gonna throw his little spin on top of it. The thing about Dust of Soundboy, if you really remember, like that record by itself, you would never listen to that record for three minutes. Nah. In a dance. That record was always part of a juggling. So you'd start off, a lot of Soundboy get dust out tonight, and then you'd switch up, you know, see, 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 see it there. Yep. You must sit down upon a tree, call out. You know what I mean? <laughs> and you would juggle it out with other songs mm -hmm. as a selector. You know what I mean? So his approach was the same thing. Like, I'm going to sing the hook. And then I'm just going to give you the Sasko version. Ah, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And yeah. so, so he was just jumped in and he was like, yo. And I was like, bro, it's really supposed to be covered. He's like, yo, don't worry about it. I don't need no publishing, no nothing like that. I just want to lace it like I'm in the dance. Mm -hmm. And then, the, you know, the Sasko version comes on. In the, and he's built for that, man. Come on, Sasko, that's his era, his sound, his voice, everything. He's that kind of DJ. Correct. You know what I'm correct. saying? He's built for those rhythms, toes per cent. Yeah, so his approach was like, you know, this is the juggling version. That's why he says it's, it's um, uh, what do you call it? Like he's two people on the record, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. But that makes perfect sense because even back in the 80s when they did records or they did it, they'll play the first part of the song and the, the artists themselves will just throw different versions and 
uh, verses in the mix just when they turn the instrumental over and they just talking on it. They'll start with the original chorus and then they'll start rapping away on different topics at different times. And people are like, wait, right. when I went to the dance last week, I heard this version. But I'll go to the dance next week, you hear a different version. Same artist, but they just kind of mix it up. So I do appreciate adding yeah. that spin to it because, it give you, again, it give you that same exact flavor. And then when you listen to the original Dusta song, where you're like, wait a minute. I forgot about these parts because you're right. You don't hear that the, the middle of the record going yeah. towards the end. So you have to just see if if was he doing it line for line or did, was, he, was he throwing his own words in. So again, I do appreciate you giving now the he, insight that on was, that. that. Yeah, that well, that was his flavor. So he definitely wanted to kind of to to bring that vibe to it. So you know, it was you know it's a nice mix. We have the more you know love overdue by you know um, Kumar. You know what I mean, which is more of a crooner sort of record in that vibe you know what i'm saying which is you know trying to be faithful to the to the whole original sound and then you have sasko giving you like freestyle dance kind of sound you know what i mean and then right. you have naomi giving you like the flip like you know you, you never heard a female trying to sing this record interpretation so we got like a good balance of you know people kind of you know interpreting the records in a, a different sort of way i, I don't i don't want to say you know there's something for everybody i hate that phrase when people talk <laughs> about it but 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 in this case when you in your brain when you're in when you said dance hall anthems people have to remember too dance hall is a space before it's the genre genre mm -hmm. right so leroy smart and them is dance hall in that time that was a dance hall record right you know what I'm saying? And Gregory Isaacs and those guys. My people are a bit confused. Like, why are you calling this dancehall? That's not dancehall. Dancehall is Beanie and Bounty. Nah. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, nah, bro. Dancehall is a space. So, you know, Michigan and Smiley, 100% Nights of the Dance is a dancehall record. Right. And which way you want to cut it. You know what I mean? You know, Sorry by IKO. I mean, she killed that. That's the only project that, that, that I didn't personally do. That one was done by Cleavey. Um, you know, from original Steely and Cleve, right. Cleve, Cleve Brownie, mm -hmm. you know, who is a mentor and a legend in this thing and somebody I look up to and a lot of us 90s producers, you know what I'm saying? The young 90s producers, when those guys were running the 90s, Steely and Cleve and, you know what I mean, and, and, and Slan, Robbie and all of those guys, you know what I mean? Steely and Cleve did a Punani rhythm, bro. I mean, these guys are, you know what I'm saying? You, you never have nineties dance hall without people like like Steely and Cleavey. Nah. You know what I mean? Not Steel is no Steel is no longer with us. Right. You know what I'm saying? But Cleavey Cleavey stepped up to the challenge. He's like, yo, you want sorry, Foxy Brown? I'm gonna do it over, man. And he digged into bro, if you think Jeremy has vintage sounds, <laughs> you sit with Cleavey, bro. He got he has the original keyboards at the house. You know what I mean? He still he has still the has actual them? Oberheim. Wow. Yeah, bro. He still he doesn't use them that much, but he still has them. Like he he, he pulled them out, and I think he, like, I guess sampled them out to use it. You know what I mean? I think he uses Logic or something. But, mm -hmm. but yeah, man, you know, so so, so definitely, man. We had, it was it was a lot of fun pulling this project together, a lot of fun from a technical and a producer standpoint as well. Tell the people why they need to go out and get dancehall anthems. What's the reason why they got to go get it? Uh, simple, because it's your nowadays artistry alone. Um, doing some classic reggae songs. We got songs that are proven hits that people know, and also for those of you who are what encouraged by the new generation of people who have Royal Blue, who have Runkus, who have Tobacco Chairman, what I'm saying, and we still have some of the favorites, like who are, I guess our old school, you know, like the Beanie Man and Sean Paul and the, the classic guys. I think it's a, a good homage to the past. I think it brings back that same emotional memory I've been telling about that we grew up with that kind of music. It'd be nice to hear refreshed versions of those songs. And for the young kids out there, 
as well, along with, you know what I'm saying, investing a little bit of the history as well and, and hearing the music in a fresh format with your artists of the day. Um, and I think, you know, overall, good music is good music and it always shines through, man. Always shines through, no matter what. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your man, DJ Blacks of Adequist Music. Today, we're talking with Jeremy Harden. We're talking about the Dancehall Anthems album project that came out October 16th, 2020. It's on VP Records. It's on all streaming platforms out there right now. So please go check it out. It has 13 tracks. We have awesome, your old school artists from your Beanie Mans, your Wayne Marshalls, your Agent Sasko Assassin to your newer guys and girls, Kabaka Pyramid, Kumar, Royal Blue. 13 tracks is out there. Jeremy, I really appreciate you taking your time for us today and letting us know all these insights. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Blacks. Appreciate it, man. Much love. Thank you.